Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hello. Hello. Trying to do an introduction. This is... Uh, that was really good. Thank you. Thank you. It was kind of creative. This is uh, Catholic Stuff You Should Know. This is Deacon John and Joe. Joe. Uh, Fatty Joe. What did they call you as a kid? <laughs> We're not going to bring that up again. Okay, that was last week. Sorry. Fatty Joe. Um... <laughs> I will never call you that true. again. The, uh, yeah. So here's my question for you, Joe. I get these phone calls every week from uh, it's a voicemail. Our introduction reminded me of this, but it's it's a recorded message. So I answer the phone, and it's a recorded message, and it says to me, "You have received a very important phone call about very important information. Please call this number." And I was like, "Why would you not? Call, why would you not have a human being call me if it's really important?" I, I get that too. I so don't I refuse to like call them back in principle, but I'm starting to wonder if it really is important information. Man, it's probably like the IRS, man. When was the like, last time you did your taxes? Uh, you know, 2001. I don't know. No, I was joking. The uh, uh, um, so I don't know what's going on there, but I need advice, uh, and I thought I'd just put that your way right so off the bat. If so. you're calling John's phone and leaving machine you, recorded messages, you can get anything off the internet. Yeah, if you have important information to tell me. You can just tell me. How does that sound? That's good. I'll know if I need to tell you something important to make sure I don't just record a message. Yeah, yeah. It sounded like your voice. So the guy on the other line sounded a little heavy. So I was like, I don't know. (laughs) Fatty Joe. Fatty Joe. Here you go. uh, Picking at my wounds. Just tapping into those childhood wounds. No, if you weren't a very thin human being, I I wouldn't uh, tap into that. So enough nonsense. Let's move. Let's move. Let's move to the Septuagint. Short. My soul's going to change in two weeks. we got to get going here. Oh, that's right. How many days do you have? Uh, 16. Well, you know what? In podcast time, dude, you are already a priest. I'm Father John in podcast world. You are. We so. never know what to do. You know, if I should just be like, hey, this is Father John, but it's not Father John. It's not. That's as bad as getting a fake recorded message saying, <laughs> you know, this is a podcast of important information. Please call this number. The uh, so we're just gonna give it to you in podcast time. Huh? We're we're playing these out because I'm not gonna see Joey uh, much in June. Uh, yeah, we don't know. Really we don't really know. know where I'm going. You don't, we don't know where you're going, and frankly, we don't know where I'm going either. So this is to be safe to make sure you, we don't do what we did last summer, which was totally blow it for three months. We want to give you podcasts this summer, so it's a good thing. Part of your summer enjoyment, uh, even though you'll probably be doing more uh, enjoyable things than listening to us. So you know what I can't wait to do by the way this summer. Mow the lawn. Yeah. Isn't that silly? Have you looked at our lawn? It needs to be mowed. Actually, that's what made me think about it. It's when disgusting. I was, in, I was like, oh, I'd love to mow this lawn, even though yeah. it's like, like a six by eight foot square. It's, this is still like a college frat house, even though we're really, we get up and do 6 a.m. holy hours. It's just a bunch of dudes who don't like to do laundry and don't like to do anything most of the time. Just want to watch movies. So You don't even have a TV. We don't have a TV, <laughs> but uh, unlike that, we're like most frat houses. So let's move to the topic. Okay. Um, I told you already what we're talking about, and it is the Septuagint. A Septuagint. Septuagint. Which I can't spell, by the way. Uh, I can't spell that, but I know what it means. Do you know what it means? Yeah, 70, right? I think so. Well, I thought you said you know what it means. <laughs> I, more like I think uh, I know what it means. The quality of these podcasts is going downhill. It's deteriorating uh. quickly. Um, yeah, so most people would, might hear this and be like, all right, Septuagint, what what the heck is that? Boring. Oh, Boring. <laughs> so if you're Give starting us, to check out, yeah. wait. Because yeah. there's actually some really cool. Sorry, things Sorry, it can't all be like Nimrod last week. I know but, that know, was that was pretty awesome. <laughs> that was all. Yeah. Probably back to the '80s. Yeah, it takes us. Back. And there, I don't think there's ever been an, uh, a a a diss like Septuagint calling yeah. somebody Septuagint. Exactly. Not like Nimrod and Fatso. Oh no. <laughs> so much. 
<laughs> All right. So uh, Septuagint. Yeah. So the Septuagint, uh, it's Greek for 70. 70. And it is significant because it is the first or the earliest translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Jewish Bible that we have right now in existence. So wait a second. I think you just said two things in one. It's the first translation of the Hebrew. Um, I said first. I meant earliest. I don't earliest. know. It might be the first to, as well. It's the first into Greek or the main one into Greek that has okay. been passed down. And it's the oldest manuscript we have? Well, it's not a Hebrew manuscript. That's the thing. We don't have a the, oldest the, manuscript. the earliest Hebrew manuscript we have is from the 6th century, the Masoretic text. That's the called. oldest Old Testament we have. That's the oldest. Old, so if you're looking like how... I don't want to read this English Old Testament. I want to, what does the Hebrew say? Well, you know what? We don't actually have the Hebrew scriptures from when they were written, uh, you know, because we didn't have printing presses. We didn't have printing printing machines. Right. So, you know, we, we didn't have, have a text. We didn't have what else? Irish monks, I was going to say. <laughs> we didn't have Irish monks to write these things down. But they did have Jewish scribes. Okay. So these scribes would copy over the centuries, over the generations, would be copying the scriptures, the Torah, and the prophetic writings and all these things. Um, and they would get passed down. But the older texts eventually deteriorate, get lost. We don't know what happened to them. But the oldest Hebrew text we have only goes back to the 6th century. So it's even after the time of Christ. We so have no Hebrew The text. oldest Hebrew text we have of the Old Testament is from the 6th century AD. And then we have the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the original, which is written in Hebrew, from when? Well, I don't know if it's not of the original, but it's from an older Hebrew okay, manuscript. From, from, from the Hebrew. Translated. From the 3rd century B.C. B.C. So We're this talking is nine, 900 Almost 1,000 years. years difference. It's, it's a huge difference. It's a big difference. Uh, and there's a lot of dis- I mean, there's, there's a lot of debate between the two. Like, is the Septuagint uh, more, is it more faithful than the Masoretic text, which is in the 6th century? Because there's some discrepancies between the two. Mm. Um, but, you know, the big argument for the Septuagint is, yes, it's not Hebrew, but it's using Hebrew uh, manuscripts that are 900 or 1,000 years older than the Masoretic text Interesting. had access to. So that, to me, it's a pretty authoritative thing. But it's specifically interesting for not just for Jews and Hebrews, because the Jews, Jews don't use the Septuagint much anymore. They don't think about it much. It's not that important to them. Right. The Masoretic text is their thing. Um, but for Christians, it's especially significant. Because the New Testament, John, as you know, is written in, in Greek. Greek. Uh, so every time the New Testament is quoting the Old Testament, it's actually quoting from the Septuagint. So, like, uh, example, Matthew 1, Behold, the woman shall, you know, the virgin shall bear a child, blah, 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 something like that. Uh, Luke 1? Or is that Matthew 1? I think it's the end of Matthew. It's Emmanuel. A... He shall be called Emmanuel. Oh, right, okay. Right? So that's a that's significant because that's a Septuagint translation, so that's a Greek Translation, it's not quoted in Hebrew. Yeah, there's that, everything's written in Greek. Yeah, in the New Testament, it's all in Greek. So that Greek is actually directly uh, mirrors the Septuagint. Interesting. So, I mean, for Christians, it has a special significance. So it's kind of a cool thing, but there's actually a really cool story about how the Septuagint came about. I think you said that you knew this story. No, tell me a story. This is story time. Story time. Um, so if I fall asleep, I'll, I'll it, reach it, for the coffee. <laughs> in the early church, they actually thought the Septuagint um, was an inspired text. A lot of people did, maybe not everybody did, but a lot of the Greek fathers, a lot of Latin fathers, uh, thought the Septuagint was just as inspired as the Hebrew text uh, because it was the it was the uh, vernacular, the Vulgate of the of the time of Christ. You know, right. Greek was like the language all over the Mediterranean and in, in Egypt, in Greece, in the Holy Land. 
Everybody knew Greek. And that was kind of like the Alex, English. Because of, the of Alexander the Great conquers the whole exactly. world. Exactly. In the 3rd, 4th century, Alexander the Great. And they spread the language. They spread the culture. The whole bit. Mm-hmm. And by this time, the Romans had taken over power-wise. But Greek, the culture was still very Greek. Right. Uh, so, the like the New Testament being, or the Old Testament being in Greek at the time, was what, what for us would be like, you know, something being in English. Where right. a lot of people in the world speak English. Right. And this happened. Uh, so, like... This ha- the the world kind of so to speak picked up its first like universal language so to speak in the civilization of Greece and the Greek and then after that you actually have prophets writing in Greek is that correct I don't know you would know more than yes I. that is <laughs> <laughs> that was a question I knew the answer to the the last few prophets actually write originally in Greek after really? after that yeah. I didn't know that. which yeah. ones uh, well it's the ones that are rejected by uh, Luther and thus the Protestant Bibles Maccabees one and two were written in Greek. Um, gosh, here we go. Uh, I need Father Mike. He would know this. He loves He's this He's a scripture stuff. guy. He's our scripture guy. Stay tuned. I've only taken like two scripture classes, so. Yeah. Uh, that's my excuse. Yeah. That's me in a few years. But anyway, okay, so they thought the, the Septuagint was inspired. Okay. It was a big deal. But And the, the story about uh, how the Septuagint started, I guess, is kind of part of the reason why they thought it was inspired, because it was such an epic event. So it was in the second, third or second century. It was kind of during that period where uh, I think it was the king of Egypt. Yeah, the king of Egypt who had the library. Descendant of Ham. Descendant of Ham, that's right. Good. Sorry. Who had a library at Alexandria. Right. Alexandria, one of the great, One of the great wonders of the world. That's right. Ancient wonders of the world. Alexandria is now underwater, I think, in the Mediterranean Sea somewhere. It, was on the, it used to be on the coast in ancient times of the Mediterranean Sea. But there, the library there was stupendous, and uh, they wanted a copy of the, a Greek uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible. So they commissioned um, the Jews to come and write, uh, to translate the Hebrew Bible. So they sent 72 Jewish scribes, six from each tribe of the Israelites, to come uh, to Egypt. And they sent them out to this little island called uh, Pharos. Do you know what solid, year this is? Um, I, the dates I have here are 287 to 247. Okay. Um, but I'm not sure exactly what year they started and which year they finished. Okay. Um, I think that's just the dates of this king. Okay. So anyway, um, so they all came together, 72 scribes, and basically uh, the king had them go into the, and they didn't even know why they were there. Uh, the king had them go into this, into these caves, these solitary cells, one by one alone, and somebody came in to say, you are here, you're being commissioned to translate the Hebrew scriptures. So here they are, you know, they put them down. I think it was just the Torah they started with. And so they put the Torah down and they said, you know, here you can work here until you're finished. And they had, and it's kind of a legendary tale. Right. Um, but they, they all, the story goes that they all translated it and they came out. And when they looked at all the 72 translations, they were completely identical. Completely identical. Word for word. And so it was like, wow, this is a miraculous event. Thus, this text, this Greek translation must be inspired by God. And so even at the time of Christ, this was kind of the main accepted text. You know? So Jesus would have used this text. Jesus would have known about the Septuagint, would have been familiar with it. I mean, he also knew Hebrew. Right. Of course, um, because he was a good Jew. But. But yeah, this was the, I mean, when the Ethiopian eunuch uh, that Philip meets on the road in the Acts of the Apostles, we're going to be reading that pretty soon. Right. Uh, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. He's not reading the Hebrew scriptures. More likely he's reading the Greek because that's the, the kind Septuagint. of the international language. He's reading the Septuagint. Yeah. Um, so interesting tidbit about this though. Um, um, the And I don't know if this is actually, if this is like pure legend or what. Dr. Barstad told the story to us and he was like, I would love if I got to heaven and found out that this was true. I, I was told this by an Orthodox um, priest who was convinced that it was true, but I haven't found <laughs> no, this much. this sounds juicy. Exactly. Um, 
But the story is this, that there is actually only one discrepancy in the of the 72 scribes. Uh, there, everything was completely, miraculously uh, identical, except for one verse and one scribe. And there was a scribe who tra- mistranslated, uh, maybe mistranslated, and he, he thought he translated it right, Isaiah, Isaiah 7, 14. The virgin? Which is about, you know the passage. Behold the virgin, so... Son. Do you have your Bible right here? We can get it. We can get it. Word for word. Hold on. Yeah. So this is the um, seven fourteen. This is in Isaiah when the you I know. Got you covered. Oh, thank you, man. You're welcome. Um, this is very professional. This is very. We're we're kind of a we're kind of a big deal, as you can tell. Okay, keep talking. Yeah. So Isaiah seven fourteen is the great messianic prophecy that you know a great sign will be given. Behold, a virgin shall give birth. Okay. She will, he will be called Emmanuel. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and and shall uh, call his name Emmanuel. That's right. And so this is int- this is an important verse here. Um, and John, you probably would know the, the details about this a little more than I would. But in the Hebrew, um, the word there actually is not virgin. Well. Well, specifically. Literally, it's young maiden. Yeah. Um. But and this was this was a debate, you know, because they yeah. didn't have a word uh, that was explicitly just virgin, and so to tra- to translate it, this you know this one scribe wanted to translate it as young maiden or something similar. I think it was the par- Parthenos so is what it is, right? Well, that's the Greek. the The Hebrew word is alma, 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 and uh, it's a broad general term for mm-hmm. a young maiden. Right. There is a more specific betula word. Is that right? For, think, yeah, for nice. virgin. Oh, boy, for a virgin. Uh, that's not in the Hebrew, that's not used. But the Septuagint translation is, is Parthenos, Parthenos, which, which is, is explicitly in Greek, virgin. virgin. And so this is this is the debate, you know, how do we translate? Because you you might find some Bibles out there now that you go to Isaiah 7.14, and it doesn't say, behold, a, young, a virgin will give birth. It'll say, behold, a young maiden will give birth. Um, and so this is this debate, you know, and all the scribes in the Septuagint translated as Parthenos, which is explicitly virgin. Right. Now, if you didn't know this, somebody who's trying to debunk the virginal birth of Christ would just say, boop, you know, Isaiah chapter 7, not a virgin, just not a, a young virgin, woman. Not a just a young woman. Not a miracle. Um, and so this is very, very important. And so how do you how do you contradict that? Well, what how I would, do you defend that, I guess? What I would say is that the translation from the Hebrew to the Greek in the 3rd century is intentional, and it shows the development of the Hebrew language. So hmm. that it's it's specific... Um, and that it's it's articul it's more it's a further articulation of the Hebrew and of the the, the deepening understanding of the text. That's what I would say. Yeah, and we have to keep in mind as well that at the time of Christ, all the he all you I know mean, this was a very widespread accepted even by Jews. Uh, the Septuagint was, and it translated Parthenos. Behold, a virgin will give birth. So there even there was a sense that yeah, this is the correct this is the this is the meaning that the language is trying to convey. And even if you think about the story, I mean, it's Ahab, right? In that mm-hmm. or Ahaz? Mm-hmm. Is it Ahab or Ahab? I can't remember the name. Ahaz. Ahaz. Thank you. No uh, and Ahaz, you know, is he's talking to the prophet. Uh, which prophet is it? I can't even remember now. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, yeah, he's talking to a prophet. I don't know. Ask Lord. Let's see. Oh, he's talking to Isaiah. Isaiah. He's talking to Isaiah. <laughs> so wow. Anyway, he's talking to Isaiah, and he says, stop. you know, Isaiah says, ask for a sign as high as heaven, as low as the depths of the sea. And then he says, you know, this is the great sign I'm going to give you. Uh, behold, the young girl is going to get knocked up. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> that's not much of a sign. Not it doesn't make sign. sense to say it's just a young maiden. Exactly. It's, it, and it's, I mean, you can even get just from the story. 
drawing that out. It's it, That's the meaning it's trying to convey. What? So anyway, the story, though, about this one scribe who tra- oh, yeah. mistranslated this 714, and he didn't want to put virgin because he says the Greek doesn't say explicitly it's a virgin. And he, the tradition goes, or the, he, the story goes, right. that an angel appeared to him and argued with him about this and said, you have to translate this. And he refused because he said, no, I need to be faithful. He took that as a temptation, like, I need to be faithful to the Hebrew text, and he refused to translate it. And the angel said to him that you, this will be the only mistake, 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 mistake of the other scribes. Um, and because you have been stubborn and obstinate here, you will not die until you see this prophecy fulfilled. And the story is that that, that scribe was Simeon, the man in the temple, who at the presentation of Christ <laughs> saw Christ and said, you know, you know, now, Lord, you can let your servant go in peace for your word has been fulfilled. Uh, because, you know, in, if you read the scriptures, Simeon, at some point in his life, received some word that he would see the Messiah. And that, that's what the scripture says. It had been revealed to him that he would he would That not is a die. crazy story. Uh, isn't that wild? Yeah. <laughs> so Barstow was like, I would be delighted if Let I could have Let it be known. Heaven. These are not, you know, this isn't like, you, like I have to believe this because it's <laughs> Catholic. True. It's just, uh, yeah, this isn't really Catholic stuff you should know or even should believe. This, this is like is Jewish more... stuff some people like. <laughs> some people like that. It could be true, and that would be excellent. Yeah, that would be cool, that. though. But there is a there is a real richness around the tradition. And we have to we have to be honest. I mean, people have been talking about this stuff since the time that this was written. So this isn't like we just made this up, you know. Um, this is these ancient, ancient traditions uh, and legends, so to speak. Had so you that, heard that before? No, no. That's really crazy. Isn't that super wild? Yeah. That is, uh, that's definitely one of the craziest things I've heard. So I would say one last word on the virginal birth of Jesus. Um, there is a number of other scripture verses as well uh, that point to the perpetual virginity of Mary. And uh, we don't have time to go into it now, but um, you can hold with confidence that it's divinely revealed in scripture uh, of her virginal birth. But we can also have confidence that God used the Septuagint translation to help prepare the way for the Greek New Testament. If Greek had not spread as a universal language, the gospel, um, the mission of in at the end of, of Matthew's gospel, go to all the nations and baptize them, proclaiming the gospel to them, uh, it would have been impossible to fulfill it. It was a reversal, so to speak, of what happened at Babel, where you have the spreading of languages. Oh. In Pentecost, you have the reunification and then the spreading. So the Alexander conquering the world, the Greek spreading all over the world, the scriptures being translated, and God's chosen people, who were supposed to convert the world, that was their job, um, being brought into a, a setting and a, and a milieu where they can, all of a sudden, Christ can fulfill the mission identity of Israel, and he has access in a way of spreading it out to the whole world. And one interesting note, Right around the time of the Septuagint, you have uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle essentially founding philosophy. There's a yeah. couple of pre-Socratics. So the philosophical movement and Christ being the logos, being the word, and the union that's going to happen between reason and faith, the Greek side, and the whole struggle in the early church mm-hmm. between the Greek and the Jewish thing to blend it together— um, it's going to be tremendous. It was really providential. I mean, it's Benedict amazing. says that, that this yeah. was a providential thing that Greek culture had developed— at to this point, at the time when Christ came, and in the early church, when there were all these dis, all these debates and and things tearing the church churches apart, the Greek the precision precision of the Greek language was actually fundamental in keeping that unity and preserving that unity Absolutely. of the early church. Absolutely, and so it's a beautiful thing how all these and the, and the Septuagint was kind of in the middle of that. That was the text most people. We were, could not know. have. Well, this is Nep, this is John Nepple speaking here. We could not have. Um, Hebrew was not a defined and a precise enough language to make the the philosophical, ontological definitions 
needed around the person of Christ, fully God, fully man. Oh, there's all these abstract concepts. And Hebrew is such a very, it's a very concrete language. Concrete. There's not a lot of words that are things that are not concrete yeah. objects, you yeah. know. It's even, one one foot out of the cave, as somebody once described it. And I think that's it's beautiful, but it's true. Greek is just so rich and so amazing. So it's a, uh, Father Mike's going to be upset about this one, but, you know, we'll put that out there. <laughs> it was all providential. It was all planned. It was all ordered. Uh, and it's a beautiful thing to kind of step back and see it. And the Septuagint's a great part of that. So nice job. Good topic. Thanks, man. I have an email here. Okay. Uh, this is actually a correction for us. Oh, here we go. And, which is wonderful because I don't think we've had too is many this of these. Steve Akers? Yeah, did you read ah, this? No. Yeah, he <laughs> corrects this. everything. I love it. I didn't even know he listened. I was just honored to hear that. He does, He listens like once a year and then, you know, correct. <laughs> it's awesome. This is our friend. This is our friend. From he, used California. To, he used to be my class, uh, but then he, he used to be our got friend moved before he to... corrected us. No, I was joking. <laughs> yeah, right. Hi, he got moved. He's, a, he's at St. Patrick's Seminary in California. Uh, we miss him a lot, but he says this. He says, Deacon John and Doman. <laughs> I was displeased to listen to your previous podcast, which addressed a listener's email about the difference between a homily at the Mass and a sermon, such as you would hear in Protestant churches. So do you remember this? We talked yeah. about homilies and sermons. What's this was you, I think. No, this is both. <laughs> <laughs> we Neither of us really knew the answer. You admitted to not providing a satisfactory answer, and we just did it again, right. and mm-hmm. promised to look into it. I was waiting for you to address this in this week's podcast. This is a few weeks ago, but you ran out of time. This distinction is the main point that I've learned this semester in my homiletics, my homiletics course. So just in case you haven't figured this out yet, let me interject a few points. So this is just to clarify. There was a question about what's the difference between a homily and a sermon. We don't really know. You know, could you explain that? And we did a poor job. Okay, so what did he say? He says this. got me interested now. A homily is distinguished from a sermon by being both scriptural and liturgical, uh, which I think we said. Look at Sacrosanctum Concilium, paragraphs 35 and 53. At this point, oh, I think it's 52, actually. Uh, he says That's again. right, we probably won't Anyway, look yeah, you don't look at this. <laughs> <laughs> at this point, the term homily wasn't being used as a standard term, so the t- Vatican II document says sermon. So Vatican II says sermon. Interest is, uh, this is a long email. I don't want to read all of this. Uh, so see. essentially the difference is a sermon is about, is on scripture, and a homily is on scripture in a liturgical setting. Um, I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, he says the notion of a sermon is associated mostly now with a teaching catechetical function centered around a theme, which would be determined by doing something like working section by section through the catechism. Which would make sense See, because, this, I think, oh, go ahead. because Protestants don't have liturgy. I mean, most of them, some of them do. But if you don't have liturgy, then you're giving sermons. You're not giving a homily, which is something very specific. Very cool, yeah. I mean, I think that's what he's going to write us another email. And he say, is. Like, yeah, you totally horrible. butchered my email. Well, make it short next time. Exactly, Steve. more concise. He had a lot of great points in there, but I think the main thing he's saying is that what you just said. I think when we said it, we said the homily is going on the readings and a sermon is thematic. Right. But we didn't know if you could. You asked, could you use a sermon in a in the mass in the liturgy, and that's what we didn't know. So okay. he's saying no. Okay. Homily is for his liturgical liturgical act. act. And sermon is a teaching kind it's of It's probably good to know, seeing as I'm going to be doing that all the time now. Yeah, that's yeah. good. So thank you, Stephen Akers, for preparing. Thank uh, you, Stephen John, for Akers. So insightful as usual. No, it's good to hear from you, buddy. Thanks for the, e- for the email. And I think that's it. If you have any comments, questions, thoughts, concerns, fears, Insults. email us. Insults for Joe. Nick Do you want to call John and Nimrod and Mia Fatso? Catholic Stuff that. Podcast at gmail.com.